right, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. I, uh, I have my throat coat tea, and um, I had a cough this week, so I'm hoping to get through without uh, coughing today, but I also have my throat lozenger in my mouth. It, it, sound, it may sound like a marble to you, but I just want you to know it's not my dentures. It's a, it's a throat lozenger. Anyways, good to have you here. If you were here last week, we began a new series here called This Is Home, and it's all about the church. And uh, just to give you a quick little recap, especially if you missed it, we learned last week that the church uh, started in Acts chapter 2 when it began. It was a, a collection of strangers. Thousands of people came from all over the Holy Land to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But what happened was on 2,000 years ago, the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and filled believers and God gave us the church. The church was born. started with a bang started with a, just, it went, literally went from zero to a thousands, to thousands of people within a matter of hours. And all those people who became a part of the church on the day of Pentecost didn't know each other from Adam. A few of them might have known, but most of them knowing, didn't know each other. They were strangers to each other. And that kind of describes our church as well to some extent. And that as many of you, as you look around here today, probably think, gee, I don't know any of these people. So you might be strangers to one another. And so last week, we talked about how it's not okay to be strangers in the church because we're a family. And it's not okay for someone to walk into our doors as a stranger and leave as a stranger. And so we said last week that the catalyst for strangers becoming friends is hospitality. That's kind of what gets things going is hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality, philoxenos, which means to love strangers. That's what hospitality is. And, and so that's our job. We must love strangers. And, and hospitality is not just, just the job of those who man the hospitality table, the hospitality ministry, but that's all of our jobs. It's all of our responsibility to love strangers. Last week, as Pastor Davey mentioned, or Pastor Dave mentioned, nearly 250 of you signed up to be part of what we're calling Operation Family Plan where we're going to be able to connect you, especially if you're fairly new to our church, we want to connect you with some of the great people in our church. And so family, um, our, uh, Operation Family Plan is an initiative of our life group ministries, and they're going to be the ones to reach out to you and uh, get you to do life with them. And so I hope you had an opportunity to sign up. If you haven't signed up for Operation Family Plan, please do so today on this pink sheet. It says, this is home on top. And you can sign up there. And very, very shortly, someone will contact you. And over the, over the next six to eight weeks, you're going to be able to do life with a bunch of other people. And uh, if you're a life group and you still haven't signed up, to participate in this, please do so. Please let Pastor Dave know that you want to participate in this. We're looking for a 100% participation rate among our uh, life groups because we think it's that important that we all are involved in loving strangers. And I believe that if we all do this, it's going to be absolutely transformative for our church. All right, so uh, let me move on. If you have a Mac, you are... Probably, you've probably, or you may have encountered this image right here. This is called the, uh, the spinning wheel of death. Now, hopefully, you haven't uh, encountered this, but if you have, it means that your computer is in trouble. It means that something is wrong with your Mac. Now, PC users like me, we've never seen this before because PCs don't have problems like Macs do. 
That one was for Gabe Lamb, I think, here somewhere today. Seriously, I'm sure you've all had problems with your computer from time to time. All of you have. And when it doesn't download fast enough, when it doesn't buffer quickly enough, when it doesn't connect to the internet fast enough, when it freezes up, and, it, and the problem could be your motherboard, it could be that you don't have enough RAM or memory or whatever it is. I don't know all these technical terms. But uh, on the other hand, when your computer, I mean, when it's, when it's fast and when it's efficient, when it's working problem-free, I mean, there is nothing like your computer. I mean, it can get so many things accomplished for you. Well, likewise, there's nothing like a car when it's firing on all its cylinders. I mean, there's nothing like a car that's firing on all its cylinders. And, and when it's not, it can sputter, it can jerk, it can stall, it can have all kinds of problems. Well, the church is the same way. There's nothing like a church when it's firing on all cylinders. But unfortunately, many churches are caught in this spinning wheel of death. They're on a death spiral. And they sputter and jerk and stall. And a lot of churches even die. Experts say that 85% of all churches in America are dying today. Think about that. It's a tragic figure. Tom Rayner, who is a church consultant, said that on average, anywhere between 100 and 200 churches close their doors every single week. 100 to 200 churches. And that as a pastor, I'm going to tell you, that just breaks my heart because the church is the bride of Christ. The church was purchased with Christ's own blood. And so when a church crashes and burns, that's, that's about as bad as it gets. But when a church is firing on all its cylinders, well, there's nothing like the church. So what does it take for the church to fire on all its cylinders? Well, it takes a lot, actually. It takes quite a bit. But the first question, really, that, that this begs, the first question is, what are those cylinders? What are those cylinders that the church must be firing on? What are those things that the church must do in order to be effective and vibrant and, and healthy? Well, I want to take you back to Acts chapter 2. So if you brought your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. And I want to give you some insight into just one of the cylinders that make it, makes a church hum. So let me read Acts chapter 2. If you've been around here for any length of time, um, this will be a passage that's familiar to you. Uh, hopefully you received a Baywatch. That's our program. When you walked in, inside, uh, there's some verses listed there. There's a sheet there with the verses listed there for you and some fill-ins. You can also follow along on our app or on the screen. But let me read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And then uh, open up our time in a word of prayer, and then we'll kind of unpack this, all right? So Acts chapter 2, 42, here's what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. <clears throat> and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, let's pray together. Father God, thank you. We thank you so much for the church. There's nothing like the church. There's nothing like it when it's firing on all its cylinders. 
And unfortunately, sadly, and many of us ex have experienced it, experienced this. Churches are hurting. Churches are dying. Churches are crashing and burning. And Father, I know that that just absolutely breaks your heart. And Father, today, I pray that you would help us to understand this one cylinder that makes the church what it is. And I pray that you would help us to excel at it so that we can be the church that you want us to be. So I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would penetrate our hearts and speak to us because we have a role to play in this. It's up to us. So speak to us now, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so someone who was dialed into the value of this cylinder that I want to tell you about today was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this man right here who was a German pastor and theologian. He was dialed into this value, to the value of this cylinder. In April 1943, he was arrested by the Nazis because of his involvement in a resistance movement against Adolf Hitler. Now, you may not be aware of this, but when Hitler rose to power, uh, the nation, including all of the, the countries, that, all of Germany's Christians, uh, supported Hitler. They rallied around him. Population of Germany was around 60 million at the time. 20 million of them considered themselves Catholic. 40 million of them uh, identified themselves as Protestant. And almost 40, and those 40 million Protestants, they belonged to the German Evangelical Church, if you can believe that. And nearly all of them backed Hitler, as you could see in this photo. But one pastor who didn't was Bonhoeffer. He was the one pastor who stood up against Hitler. He opposed Hitler. And so he was arrested and put in prison, put in concentration camp. And during his incarceration, Bonhoeffer was moved from prison to prison to prison, from Tegel to Berlin to Buchenwald to Schomburg to Flossenburg. According to Mitchell Lewis, who wrote about what life was like in Flossenburg, he said that it was extremely, unbelievably cruel. Rations were so meager, and people died every single day. In fact, the death rate in Flossenburg was so high that they needed to build a crematorium to dispose of all the bodies. And the prisoners' personal identities, once they entered Flossenburg, their identities literally disappeared when they arrived in camp. Here's what Lewis wrote. Guards inflicted arbitrary beatings and executions to terrorize the prisoners. The SS guards publicly hanged prisoners in the roll call grounds while the camp population stood for hours in formation. The Nazis shot prisoners in mass in the valley below the camp so that the corpses would fall close to the crematorium. They euthanized the sick in the isolation barracks, and they executed special prisoners in the detention barracks by hanging them or strapping them in a device to hold them still while they shot them in the head. That's what life was like in Flossenburg. And by moving Bonhoeffer from one prison to the other, Bonhoeffer lost all contact with his friends in the Christian community. He lost all contact with the people in his church. And when he lost contact with them, he lost, according to his own testimony, the most precious possession that he had, and that was fellowship. Finally, on April the 9th, 1943, by special order of Hitler's executioner, Heinrich Himmler, he was, Bonhoeffer was hanged until dead. Before he died, he wrote a book called Life Together. And in that book, he spoke about the unrivaled value of fellowship. Here's what he said. 
The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. A physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. How inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who, by God's will, are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Let him who has such a privilege thank God on his knees and declare, It is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in fellowship with Christian brothers. That's what Bonhoeffer wrote about fellowship. And I want you to make a special note of that second sentence there, that fellowship is a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. We're going to come back to that in just a second. So here was Bonhoeffer, a leader in the church, cut off from the church, living in the most horrid of circumstances, not living but surviving. And what he missed more than anything else was fellowship, sweet, sweet fellowship with other believers. You see, fellowship is one of the cylinders that makes a church pulsate with life. Take a look at Acts chapter 2 at verse 42 again. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All right, so get your pen. I want you to circle the word fellowship in verse 42. The word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Now, I refer from, to the Greek from time to time because the New Testament was written in the Greek. Our Bible is merely an English translation of the Greek. And sometimes the actual Greek gives more meaning to the word, is richer than, than the English. And so we look at the Greek, and the Greek word for fellowship, koinonia, is found all throughout the New Testament, used at least 30 times, and it means to share or to contribute. And uh, in this passage, we see koinonia in action. It is in action. And then when you jump down to verse 44, we'll put that up here for you. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. All right, put a circle or an underline. All who believed were together. All who believed were together. And this implies that genuine fellowship is rooted in faith. All who believed were together. Apostle Paul alluded to this several times um, in a rhetorical questions in rhetorical questions that he asked to the letter at, at the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 14. The Apostle Paul said, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And then he asked these series of rhetorical questions. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial was a reference to Satan. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And the answer is nothing. It's nothing. Light can't have fellowship with darkness. Righteousness doesn't have anything in common with wickedness. There is no harmony between Christ and the devil. And the believer doesn't have anything in common with the unbeliever. That's what Paul was saying. And thus, true biblical fellowship can only take place between two or more Christ followers. It can only take place between two believers, two or more believers, which is why when it comes down to you making the most important decision you'll ever make in this life, and that is who to marry, the Bible commands us not to be unequally yoked. In other words, don't marry an unbeliever because you will never be able to experience genuine fellowship with them because genuine fellowship can only occur between believers. You know, after I graduated from high school, 
Roosevelt High School in East L.A. I attended Cal State L.A. for a couple years. And in the very first quarter that I was there, I joined a fraternity. And I never knew that college could be so much fun. I, um, in my first quarter there, I took up smoking, cigarettes, of course. I started drinking ginger ale, of course. And I danced the night away. And the guys in my frat became my best buds. And then I went away to Pepperdine. And uh, that's where I became a follower of Jesus. And literally everything changed in my life, literally overnight. I started hanging out with a bunch of people who loved Jesus. And we would talk all night, all night, and we'd talk about God. I became pals with a particular guy named Steve Hughley, who is now with the Lord. And nearly every morning... Uh, Monday through Friday, Steve and I, we lived in the furthest dorm away from the classrooms. And nearly every morning, Steve and I would meet in a downstairs suite. And we would walk together to our class. And as we were walking to our class, we, were, we would belt out worship songs as we went. And it knit our hearts together. And that's when I started to learn the true meaning of fellowship. You see, fellowship isn't socializing and it isn't having fun. It isn't watching Netflix together or playing video games together. It's much deeper than that. True fellowship, koinonia, is a shared life that is rooted in faith. You can write that one down. It is a shared life that is rooted in faith. Faith is what unites us. I mean, consider this for a moment. In the Acts chapter 2 church, there were all kinds of people. There were all kinds of people. There were merchants and there were slaves and there were slave owners. There were prostitutes and tax gatherers and fishermen and Roman soldiers and old people and young people and married people and single people. And according to the Bible, there were people not only from Jerusalem, Jews from Jerusalem, but there were Gentiles from Mesopotamia, which was present-day Iraq. There were Arabs and Turks and Egyptians and Libyans. There's a whole list of the kind of people who were there in Acts chapter 2. And they all spoke different kinds of languages. But they were bound together by one common thread, and that was Jesus Christ. So the church was as diverse as diverse could be, but they were united by faith in Christ. This was an uncommon fellowship. Sadly today, the church continues to be woefully segregated. Segregated. Someone who spoke out against this was Martin Luther King. Tomorrow we'll observe his birthday. But one of the most enduring quotes came from his observation on Meet the Press in 1960, I watched it, was that the most segregated hour of the week in Christian America was at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. And that's when Christians would meet together. Blacks here, whites here, Asians here. Everyone would meet together separately. And that shouldn't be. The church ought to look like heaven, right? The church ought to be integrated. The church ought to be where everybody can come together. You see, from the moment that the Holy Spirit came down on the, on the day of Pentecost, believers recognized one thing, and that is they were family. They recognized that they were family. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Will you circle the word household there? <clears throat> we are members of the household of God. The word household is the Greek word oikeos, and it means family. We are members of the family of God, oikeos. Now, one of the 
hermeneutic tools that we use to translate. Her hermeneutics is the art of translating the Bible. One of the tools we use to translate a verse, for example, is to look at another verse that might be just like it and see what they say. So if you were to compare Ephesians 2.19 to 1 Timothy 5.8, we'll put 1 Timothy 5.8 up here for you side by side. Here's what 1 Timothy 5.8 says. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right, so in verse, verse 8 here, circle the word household. It's the same word that we find in Ephesians 2.19, oikeos. But in 1 Timothy 5.8, it refers to family, blood family, blood relations. He who does not provide for his own relatives, his own uncles, his own aunties, his own cousins, his own grandfather, his own grandmother, right? In other words, especially members of his own household. These are people who are related by blood, oikeos. Then he is worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. And so the implication here is that oikeos refers to those who are related to you by blood. And the implication for us is that we are related to each other by blood, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Among family members, there's this deep interconnectedness. There's an intimacy amongst us. And as family, as a church family, we are interconnected. We share that intimacy. We share that interconnectedness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that we are family regardless of the color of our skin. We are family regardless of age differences. We are, we are family regardless of where we come from. We are linked by, 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 uh, by Jesus Christ. So right now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to somebody next to you who is not a member of your blood family. So if you came with your spouse, you can, don't talk to them. But turn to somebody that you don't know maybe and say to them, we are family. We are family. All right, would you do that? Turn to somebody. We are family. Okay, so now that we have established, now that we've established that we are family, that you're family, right, turn to that same person and say to them, great, can I borrow some money? <laughs> All right, and here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. It was this sense of family. It was this sense of family that drove the Acts chapter 2 church to, to, be, to be devoted to fellowship. You can write that one down. It was a sense of family that drove them to have fellowship with one another. It's family because we are family. You know, in April of 1990, this man, Frank Reed, was released after 44 months of uh, brutal captivity in Lebanon. He was among a group of Americans and others who were taken uh, captive by a group called the Islamic Don, Organization of Islamic Don. He was kidnapped. He was kidnapped in 1986. And throughout most of his captivity, 44 months, Reed was blindfolded 24-7. In fact, after he, was, uh, after he got out of prison, he says, I feel weird not to have a blindfold on. But he was blindfolded literally every single day of his captivity, chained to a wall and kept in solitary confinement. And although he was beaten and sickened and tormented, he told Time Magazine that the, the worst part of his imprisonment was feeling like he wasn't cared for, like nobody cared. Here's what he told Time. Quote, nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist and not a single expression of caring around you. I, I learned one overriding fact. Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, 
you are truly alone. Felt like nobody cared. And that was the worst part of this captivity. Bonhoeffer probably felt the same way. I don't know about you. I don't know if you know this, but the word care actually is a, is a German word. It comes from a German word called caro. And caro actually means to be sad or to cry. And it carries with it the idea that a caring person feels sad because you feel sad. That's where it comes from. Hence, a caring person is someone who enters your world and feels your pain. You know, one of the benefits of fellowship is that it makes us feel cared for. Take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 45. And it says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. You see, we see koinonia in action. People cared for each other. They cared about each other. They cared for those among them who were down and out. And they cared for those among them who were hurting. When a brother hurt, they hurt. And that's what a church does. We hurt for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. The Apostle Paul said, if one member suffers, what? All suffer. All suffer together. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And they cared, that first church, they cared enough to do something about it. They didn't simply say, oh, you poor thing. Take care. They did something tangible to show that they cared. And from my reading of this passage, these weren't a bunch of rich folks who took care of a bunch of poor folks. No, these were ordinary folks with ordinary means. And in order, for, in, fact, in order for them to be able to help somebody else, they needed to sell some of their own possessions so that they would have the money to help somebody else. And that's exactly what they did. So write this one down. Fellowship makes me feel cared for. When you hang around people who believe what you believe, it makes you feel cared for. You know, right before Christmas, uh, there was somebody in our church gave us a good-sized check. And to my knowledge, he wasn't even working. Uh, he'd been out of, a, out of a job for about a year. And he asked that we give the money to someone in the church or, uh, you know, a couple people in the church who needed it. And he just said, I just want to ask to remain. I just want to be, uh, remain un- anonymous in this. And so I said, oh, thank you very much. And I deposited the check in my account. I'm, I'm kidding. I didn't, I didn't do that. So I spoke with our staff about it. I spoke with our pastors about it. And we, we identified two people who were going through uh, some pretty tough times. And so we, we got the amount. We split it right down the middle and gave each one of them half. And I know that they were overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving. And I'm sure it made them feel deeply cared for. You know, that's what fellowship does. It makes us feel cared for. Let me ask you something. Who are the people in your life who make you feel cared for? Other than your spouse, other than your children, other than your parents, who are the people in in your life who make you feel cared for? Maybe the better question is this. Who in the body of Christ are you showing care to? Who do you show care to? And another friend that I made at Pepperdine was a guy named Scott Wegner. Scott was a terrific guy. I would walk into his room. He was a baseball player. I would walk into his room, his dorms, uh, into my dorm suite, and Scott would be there uh, reading his Bible. And whenever I walked in, he would set his Bible down to chat with me. And to be honest with you, I was, uh, I was a little bit intimidated by Scott because he was, a, he was a, such a godly man. He was only about a year older than I was. I was a brand new Christian, but he was a, he was a godly man. He had been a Christian for a long time. 
And uh, we would have these great conversations. He would, he, would, he would always encourage me in my faith. I'm new to the faith, but he would always encourage me in my faith. And after we were done, he would pray for me. I, I didn't pray for him because I didn't know how to pray. But he would pray for me. And when he was done praying for me, and see, he would say amen, uh, my heart just leaked joy. It leaked joy. I, there was joy just spilling out all over the place. It happens when, when someone takes your name and places it be, before the throne of Almighty God. It, you just are, you're overcome by joy. And it was a sad day for me when Scott graduated and I didn't see him in that dorm suite any longer. You know, as you may know, the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time in prison because of his faith. When he wrote the letters to Timothy, he was incarcerated in the Mamertine prison in Rome, which was really nothing more than a hole in the ground. It was a circular dungeon about 30 feet in diameter located next to the city's main sewer system there in Rome. And prisoners would be lowered into the prison through this hole. This is, this is an actual picture of, of the prison. And uh, they would be lowered into that hole there, and they would be placed in there, about 30 to 35 prisoners. And when the pr prisoners, well, when the authorities needed to make more room for the prisoners, you know what they did? They would open up the door to the sewer that was right adjacent to it, and the dungeon would, would, would flood with sewage and fill it up with sewage and drown all the prisoners. You know, today, you know what we do at, at, at the L.A. County Jail when, when we have too many prisoners? We let them go. We just release and say, okay, you can go now. Well, what they did back then was they killed all the prisoners by flooding it with sewer, sewer water. According to Roman uh, historian Salus, the dungeon was repulsive, terrible on account of neglect, dampness, and smell. I can only imagine. There was no ventilation. There was no lighting. There was no sanitation. There was no running water. In the summer, the heat was stifling. In the winter, the cold was bone chilling. And no matter what the season was, the physical and mental torment and anguish was absolutely unbearable. Can you imagine being incarcerated in a place like that? That's where Paul was when he wrote these words, 2 Timothy 1, verse 2 through 4. He wrote to Timothy, my beloved child, and he wasn't his blood child, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Boy, that last verse. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. So here was this spiritual giant of a man, the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament. And at the end of his life, what he wanted more than anything else was the sweet, sweet fellowship of his friend Timothy. And why did he long for fellowship with Timothy? It says it right here. Because fellowship with Timoth Timothy filled him with joy. It filled him with joy. And you can write that one down. That's what fellowship does. It gives us joy. He leaked joy. Sadly, Paul never saw Timothy again. He longed to see him, but he never saw him again because shortly after he wrote this letter, he was executed by the Roman government. Let me ask you something. Who is your Timothy? Who is the one who comes alongside you and fills your heart with joy? Now, I'm not talking about your spouse or your significant other. I'm talking about a Christian friend other than somebody you're married to. Who is it that, whose fellowship fills you with joy? Better yet, who do you bring joy to because of the fellowship that you bring into your relationship? Another man 
that Paul loved fellowshipping with was Onesephorus. Take a look at what Paul said about him in 2 Timothy 1, verse 16. He said, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Would you circle that word refreshed? Paul said Onesephorus refreshed him. Now we don't know much about Onesephorus. There are only two verses uh, about him in the Bible. Well, he's mentioned only twice. But we do know this. We, knew, we do know that he was near and dear to Paul. And that word refreshed is the Greek word anapsuko. Anapsuko and looks like this. And it's, uh, it's a compound word made up of two words. The word ana, which means again. And psycho or suko, which means to cool off, to cool off. We put them together, anapsuko means to cool off again. And it literally means to cool off again by blowing. <sighs> cool off again by blowing. And it's translated in the English, refreshed. And Paul's point was this, that Onesephorus was like a breath of fresh air to him. He was like a cold glass of lemonade on a hot day. He refreshed his soul. And that's what fellowship does. It leaves us refreshed as opposed to feeling drained and depressed. So you can write that one down. Fellowship refreshes me. And so I would ask, as I've asked before, who refreshes you? Who refreshes your soul? When you feel defeated, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel burned out, when you feel like you can't handle your kids anymore, when you can't cope with all the mounting pressures of life, when you can't handle the stresses of being a single parent, when you feel like you can't carry the workload or the school load any longer, who refreshes you? Who is like a breath of fresh air to you? We all need someone like that, right? We all need someone to be a breath of fresh air to us. Better yet, who do you refresh? Who do you refresh? Who are you a breath of fresh air to or are you just a bag of hot air, right? We all need refreshment, right? And that's why fellowship is so critical. That's why it's one of the cylinders of the church. If I told you that I was discouraged um, in my job, and then I feel like quitting, what would you say to me? If I told you that I was failing in school and I was thinking about dropping out, what would you say to me? If I told you that I was struggling in my marriage and I was thinking about leaving my wife, what would you say to me? If I told you that I was in a very dark place today and that I've been depressed and I've been feeling anxious and I've been having these suicidal thoughts, what would you say to me? If I told you that we've been trying to have a baby for years and years, but it's just not happening, and finally we're just giving up, we're just depressed and we're giving up, and there's no hope. If I told you that I was addicted to drugs or addicted to porn or addicted to booze, and I am worthless and hopeless, hopeless, what would you say to me? Well, first of all, I hope you'd say something. I would hope that you would say something, and I would hope that you wouldn't say, you're right, you are worthless and hopeless. You ought to give up, right? But you know what I've come to think? I've come to realize, I don't think we encourage like we need to encourage. I don't think we encourage like the church ought to encourage. Because I, I would hope that you would encourage me if I told you those things. But I, think, I don't think that most people are encouragers. You know, when I, here's why I believe this. You know, when, I was, when, when my daughter Natalie played basketball, I would go to as many games as I could. Uh, and I would always... I think that I was one of the loudest dads in the stands, which is why my wife Cheryl never wanted to sit next to me. And uh, that's true. And the reason why I was so loud 
was because I felt like I had to compensate for the other parents who were so quiet. I mean, if one of the girls made a good play, they wouldn't say much at all. Well, maybe they'd be like, oh, good job. Oh, nice shot. Right, you want, and I'm thinking, say it louder so she can hear it, right? But the only time anybody ever got loud, other than me, was when they made a bad play. And it was usually the dad who say, I can't believe you took that shot. Why did you take that shot? What's wrong with you? It's always the dad that does that. I mean, and not, there is not just, uh, not just on the, you know, it's just like, they're just, oh, you know, so quiet. So Asian, right? Like, just drives me crazy. But, but the lack of encouragement is not just evident on the basketball court. I think it's evident in life. I mean, think about this for a moment. Parents, parents, when was the last time you encouraged your child? When was the last time you encouraged your teenager? It's so, it's so easy for us to always be on our teenager's case. When was the last time you just lifted them up and encouraged them and told them what a good job they're doing or how special they are? I heard about a, a son, a young man who got an A on his final exam. And instead of praising his son for getting an A, the dad asked him, why didn't you get an A plus? He was definitely Asian. Right? Why didn't you get an A plus? When was the last time, husbands, when was the last time you encouraged your wife? Wives, when was the last time you encouraged your husbands? Bosses, when was the last time you encouraged your workers? When was, you, when was the last time you encouraged anybody? 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul said, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You see, encouragement builds us up, right? It, it builds us up. And that's why we need to fellowship because fellowship encourages us. You can write that one down. It encourages me. Encourages us not to quit. Encourages us to persevere. Encourages us to keep at it. Encourages us to keep our eyes on the Lord. Keep looking up. And that's why fellowship is crucial. And Bonhoeffer and Paul, by their own words, said they couldn't live without it. These giants couldn't live without it. And if these giants couldn't live without encouragement, well, then how can we? I, I, I'll tell you, I desperately need encouragement. On a daily basis, I need encouragement. What about you? Remember, fellowship isn't about socializing. It, it isn't about having fun together. Now, those things, getting together to eat and going out with friends, that, those are all good, and they can be a catalyst, can be a catalyst for fellowship, because fellowship can happen in that context. But those things in and of itself is not fellowship. Fellowship is much deeper than that. And that's why Bonhoeffer wrote this about fellowship. Remember I asked you to make a note of it? He said, a physical sign of the gracious, fellowship is a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. Get that again. It is a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. In other words, when you fellowship with other believers, it's as if God shows up and God is there. He's right there speaking through that other person to you. And he's right there speaking through you to that other person to offer care, to offer refreshment, encouragement, 
And that's why fellowship is one of the cylinders of the church. And if we're a church that constantly fellowships, not just socializes, not just has a lot of clicks, but if we're a church that fellowship, fellowships with one another, do you know what will happen? People would bust down these walls to get in here. Because people are desperately seeking that kind of a relationship with other people. People are lonely. They want fellowship with each other. Deep, intimate fellowship with one another. And we couldn't keep people out. And not only that, if, if our church fellowship like that, well, it would, it would just pump you up. It would pump you up and you could get through the darkest days. You could probably even do imprisonment in jail because you had the fellowship to keep you going. But without it, without fellowship, it will be the spinning wheel of death for all of us. My prayer is that our church will be a fellowshipping church. So next time you get together with some other believers, don't just talk about impeachment or the Super Bowl, right? Talk about what God has been doing in your life. Talk about what God has been teaching you. Share about what it is you're struggling, and then pray for each other. And you will fellowship at the deepest level, and you will feel cared for, you will feel encouraged, you will feel refreshed, and you will leak joy. Amen? All right, let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your grace, graciousness to us, for your faithfulness to us, that you would give us the church, not the organization, not the institution, but that you would give us each other, that you would give us a family to encourage, to care, to refresh. Thank you, Father, for the church. And Lord, I know that there are a lot of people in this room still who are just strangers, strangers to us, strangers to me. Oh, I pray, Lord God, I ask you with all my heart, do a work here at South Bay so that we can begin to reach out and do life with each other, to begin to fellowship with each other in the way that you intended so that we can be the church you want us to be. Father, allow us to get white hot with this cylinder, white hot about fellowship. Father, and I pray that when you do that, there would be so much joy here, we wouldn't know what to do with it. Because, because we recognize that we have family. Because our best friends will be here. Because we'll fall in love with each other. So do that here, Lord God. Do that here. And we thank you, Father, just for the fact that you gave all of this to us by your grace and by your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you for the church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.